Well, we find ourselves this morning in Luke chapter 14. I would encourage you, if you would, please to turn there with me. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's on page 873. 873. Before we jump into the passage, I just want to thank several of you who have prayed for, uh, for myself and then also this weekend for Alex as we have, have been teaching. Where there was a module that we did with Tri-M. Uh, Daniel Kane, who's one of our, our missionaries, uh, Alex and I had the opportunity just to kind of lead them through eschatology, a, a class on eschatology. That was a, a tremendous joy. Um, I, I loved how Alex introduced himself. He said that his mom was much happier with this trip than the last time we went to Russia. And, and those of you who remember what that last trip was like, it was a couple years ago, and Alex and I went through to St. Petersburg and they would not let us enter the country. They deported us to Turkey first before we could come back. It was, it was quite, an, uh, quite an affair. So uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, my wife was also much happier that we did this via Zoom this year, although what a special class this was. Group of individuals who love the Lord. It was so refreshing to teach them. Their, their um, insatiable appetite for the scripture was just infectious and refreshing. Um, but also last week, weekend had the chance to teach a group in a different city of Russia, Vologda, and, uh, and that was a joy for me. Um, it's special to have these opportunities not only to encourage brothers and sisters around the world, but also to, to allow it to kind of be a discipling opportunity and to let some of our younger men be part of this teaching process. And so Alex helped me this weekend, and then as you know, about a month and a half ago, uh, Isaac and I went down to Costa Rica so uh, the more of these that we get to do, um, the sweeter it is to, to see God work in the hearts and lives of, of younger men. What a joy that is. Thank you for your prayers and for the, the opportunity to, to be a part of that ministry. This morning we are finding ourselves in Luke chapter 14. We, we're now in a, in a different setting. Um, now it's in a home. It's on a Sabbath day, and, and a lot of the things that, that we have seen in Jesus' life and ministry will kind of come to a head again as we, as we see in this passage this consistent message of Christ in terms of demonstrating the right kind of heart, the heart of God, mimicking and mirroring the heart of God to others. Notice from verse 1 it says this. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. In our passage today, Jesus has, has accepted another dinner invitation. What is it about Jesus that he keeps stepping in? What is it about Jesus that he allows himself to enter into what he knows is going to be a hostile situation? This man, who is a ruler of the Pharisees, at least he's one of the distinguished Pharisees among the other Pharisees, but, but, but since he's in and around Jerusalem, many commentators believe he's not just a leader of a synagogue, but, but likely one of the, the elite leaders of the Pharisees, meaning that he was part of the Sanhedrin, part of the 70, who just in a couple of months from this point will sentence Jesus to death, will turn him over to the Roman authorities and will essentially send Jesus to his crucifixion. And here Jesus is, accepting an invitation, stepping in 
to allow this leader of the Pharisees and the rest of those who are part of his company to access the Messiah one more time in very close proximity and thus be acquainted another time with the gospel, to see the heart of God, to see the overflowing mercy of our Savior for those who desperately need to be saved. Of course, this has been the pattern of Jesus' life going all the way back to the beginning of his public ministry. And, and, and as I was reminded of here we are back in Luke chapter 14, here we are back in the home of, of another individual, I was reminded this is just the way Christ does his work. This is the, this is the, the, the characteristic of, of how Christ does ministry. His, his commitment to hospitality is, is evident from start to finish. Let me just give you a, a brief overview. Just kind of walk through this, this timeline of Jesus' life to remind us all of the significance of this strategic heart of Christ to engage the world around him. In Luke chapter four, Jesus, um, Jesus has, has left very uh, extensive ministry in a synagogue and, and, and he moves his way into the home uh, of Peter, Simon Peter, and, and he's doing more ministry. There he is, instead of taking a nap, Jesus is, is, in, is enjoying the company of friends who are there. He, he is healing Simon Peter's mother-in-law and engaging the, 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 the community after the meal to heal them all until the sun sets later that day. In Luke chapter five, Jesus calls Matthew to himself. Follow me, Jesus says. And Matthew sets up this, this dinner invitation where all of his tax collector buddies come over and, and Jesus is there in the company of them and shares again the message of the kingdom of God. In Luke chapter seven, Jesus accepts another dinner invitation and goes to the house of a Pharisee named Simon. Simon sees that, that Jesus is, is reclining at this table and a woman from the city comes in, this immoral woman comes in, anoints Jesus' feet with, with, with ointment, um, washes his feet with her hair. And while this is all, all going down, this, this Pharisee, Simon, says, if this guy, Jesus, was really a prophet, he would know who this immoral woman is. He'd have nothing to do with her. Upon which Jesus capitalizes on the opportunity, helps to instruct Simon of the heart of God in terms of forgiveness for those who recognize their unworthiness, and, and Jesus commends this act of service of this woman in recognizing her sin in coming and anointing Jesus' feet. Jesus will say, to whom much is forgiven. Um, let's see. What's that? To whom much is given, much is required. No, I don't think that's, that's not it. Ah, he who is forgiven much loves much. That's what he says. That's good. Hey, guys, thank you, guys. This is audience participation. We're kind of doing this together. Jesus knew this immoral woman where she was. Everybody in the room knew where this woman was. She knew she was unworthy. Jesus forgives her and recognizes the quality of recognizing unworthiness that leads us to affection towards Christ. That's what happens. And Jesus capitalizes on this moment of being a guest in this home to emphasize this point. In Luke chapter nine, 
You could say that Jesus was a host of another big party. 5,000 men, and not including women and children, who came to hear him teach. And here Jesus is. He's he's distributing uh, loaves of bread. He's distributing these fish. He's meeting the the physical needs of the individuals who come. He's teaching them spiritually. He's interested in in welcoming them and making himself accessible and seeking to minister to those physical needs. In Luke chapter 10, we find Jesus. Here he is again, another home the home of Martha and Mary and Lazarus, and there Mary is, sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to him teach. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus accepts a dinner invitation to another Pharisee. And while that Pharisee notices that Jesus, he, he doesn't wash himself ceremonially before he sits down, he's thinking in his heart, maybe saying out loud, and Jesus addresses this directly and begins to coach the Pharisees and the scribes about their own hypocrisy. You know, you, you guys are washed on the outside, but on the inside, on the inside, you're full of dead men's bones. On the inside, you are wicked to the core, if you only knew. In Luke chapter 13, Jesus talks about this future dinner this future meal in the kingdom of heaven. He says, they're gonna come from the north and the south and the east and the west. They're gonna come and they're gonna participate in this this dinner, this meal, this feast. They're in the kingdom of God. That's what we're looking forward to. Of course, in Luke chapter 14, we're gonna review that this morning, this dinner gathering at a ruler of the Pharisee. In Luke chapter 15, it's it's Jesus' ministry of hospitality that gets him in trouble, again, with the scribes and Pharisees when they say in, ver- in chapter uh, 15, verses one and two, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. How dare he? In Luke 16, Jesus tells a parable about the rich man. It says, who feasted sumptuously every day while the poor man, Lazarus, was waiting outside the gate. It was an indication of what was really going on in this rich man's heart. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus gives another parable of another unworthy servant who uh, serves supper to his master. In Luke chapter 19, Jesus goes to the home of Zacchaeus. And of course, in Luke chapter 22, this Passover meal that Jesus will celebrate with his disciples. We find that leading up to the final week of Christ's ministry, all the way up to Luke chapter 19, where he's making his way into Jerusalem, there are 12 out of 15 chapters that describe Christ's public ministry where he's, where he's described for his hospitality. His ministry is painted in terms of, of, of receiving guests or, or uh, being a part of some um, uh, festivities that are taking place this ministry of hospitality. We have seen consistently the pattern of Christ's life of stepping in, the consistent pattern of accepting invitations, this consistent pattern where Jesus has not written the Pharisees off. He's not avoiding them. He's not abandoning them. We see this incomprehensible kindness and mercy of our Savior in a willingness to step in. We come to realize, as we look at Jesus' life, that he is not like us. When we get hurt, when we're opposed, when we're afraid for our safety, when we're discredited, 
or undermined, when people assassinate our character, when people judge our motives, we do not accept dinner invitations. We, we do not allow ourselves to become accessible. We distance ourselves from those kinds of people to avoid further interaction and further criticism. But not Jesus. Jesus steps in. Because Jesus understands the strategic nature of mealtime. Jesus has come to understand that there is not something that's going to happen for him. This, this does nothing for him. There's no advantage to him to come and accept this invitation to this ruler of the Pharisees, unless there's a better and bigger picture in mind. And as Jesus has described heaven in this way, as a mealtime experience of fellowship and encouragement and community, Jesus wants to echo and emulate the heart of God during mealtime and hospitality to show the gospel. So that's really what's happening here in front of us is, is Jesus is instructing this crowd about their lack of hospitality so he can help to, them to understand the true nature and true heart of God for undeserving people. So we saw Christ's commitment to hospitality. It shouldn't surprise us then that that those who follow Christ, the disciples of Christ, also should commit themselves to hospitality. In chapter 14, verses 8 and 10 and 12 and 13, we see this. Jesus says, when you are invited. In verse 10, when you are invited. In verse 12, when you give a dinner. Verse 13, when you give a feast, meaning one of those two options will play out at some point along the way in your life if you are a true follower of Jesus. You will both accept invitations and you will, you will extend invitations. Hospitality will be part of the rhythm of those who love Jesus because they're gonna be following after the, the pattern of Christ's life, one who pressed in to relationship. It's assumed that those who are disciples of Christ, this will be the natural outworking of the way they demonstrate their love for Christ and their, their love for one another. Through the missions conference, we handed out this, this book called The Simplest Way to Change the World. Those of you who have registered and maybe didn't pick up this book, we have extra copies. I would encourage you to get it. It's, it provides just a really good, practical way to, to work out hospitality if it's not something that you're already hardwired for. We have some extra copies, so if you want one, you can purchase it as well. I, I would encourage, if you have not read this book, it's one that's worth your time. One of the things that they say is the secret weapon for gospel advancement is hospitality. And you can practice it whether you live in a house, an apartment, a dorm, or high rise. It's the secret weapon because it's so versatile. But it's also the secret weapon because in a unique way it shows the heart of God. Perhaps in a way that you can't express the heart of God um, any better. Hospitality that shows the heart of God for individuals. They also say this, because our role in representing God to the world, when we don't walk in hospitality, we do not tell the truth about God. Now that's interesting. 
When we don't walk in hospitality, we don't tell the truth about God. It's that important. It's a way for us to illustrate the portrait of our hospitality-loving God, the heart of God for people. And we're gonna see that as we walk through this text this morning. We're gonna see the heart of God in showing the character of God through hospitality. But, but of course, it was also part of the early church. It was the natural outflow of a spirit-filled church that we see in Acts chapter two, verse 42. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread into prayers, and day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. As they showed the portrait of the heart of God in this way, in their hospitality, their love not only overflowed to one another, but they welcomed others in to participate and see this visible illustration of what the gospel can accomplish, and that is unify the people of God. And so God used it mightily that day by day those were, those were added to the church who were being saved. God used it. It's also a qualification for spiritual leaders. We see that in 1 Timothy chapter three and Titus chapter one. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Find a little curious that hospitality takes a ranking even over able to teach because the heart of one who loves God will express it through hospitality. It's also the mark of a healthy church that we find in Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13. Love one another with brotherly love and affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. <laughs> when a church loves one another, it overflows in welcoming them in to relationship, which happens maybe best as you have them into your home and you're enjoying fellowship over some food together. It's also the priority of believers who recognize that the end is near. It should be this growing priority for believers as we find from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses seven and nine. It says this, the end of all things is at hand, so what do we do? Well. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I like that second part. <laughs> I find myself there way too many times. Okay, if we gotta have somebody over, whatever. Do it with a heart that demonstrates you love God and you love people. It makes God look glorious when we show hospitality that way. It paints a beautiful portrait of the gospel. And that's what Jesus is doing. He keeps stepping in. He keeps making himself available. He keeps accepting invitations. Why does he do it? Well, there's only one reason, and that's because he wants to show the beauty of the gospel. He wants to point to the wonder of the, of the person of God show his character, demonstrate his heart, make the gospel accessible. And so that's what Jesus is doing. 
We find that here in verses one to six, where hospitality provides an opportunity for mercy. Jesus demonstrates the compassionate heart of God for this individual who's shown up at this, at this banquet, this feast. One Sabbath, it says, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him closely. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, it is, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. The Pharisees have kind of learned their lesson. Jesus has healed on the Sabbath day time and time again. And now they, they're looking for a controlled environment. Now they're looking for a way to trap Jesus and to, and to place him into this environment where they kind of control the factors. Those who have come and, and they want to stockpile their evidence against Jesus so they have a, a way to accuse him of being a lawbreaker. The clue here is they were watching him carefully as they have done now since his Galilean ministry all the way back in Luke chapter six. We find that there is a man in the room with dropsy. It's just another word for edema. It usually occurs in the feet or the ankles or the legs. It can cause, of course, great pain and stiffness in one's joints. Dropsy refers to this abnormal accumulation of liquid in the cells or the tissue. It causes swelling and poor circulation. A primary symptom of dropsy was that they had an unquenchable thirst in a body that was already bloated. But drinking, of course, only made the victim thirstier and also worsened this disease. In the Greco-Roman world, dropsy was seen as the consequence of gluttony. They could not keep from drinking more and more this insatiable appetite for more liquid that caused their body to swell. So it became this metaphor for greed and for lust. When people saw someone with dropsy, the, the immediate thing they thought in their, their mind was, this is an immoral person. We want nothing to do with them. Dropsy was also a label for those who loved money, those who were covetous. And Jesus had already confronted covetousness back in chapter 13. In their minds, the Pharisees, this man was an obvious sinner. And from what we know in Luke chapter 15, they weren't about to eat with tax collectors and sinners. That's what they were going to accuse Jesus of. And so the fact that this guy was here meant that he was just a setup for their little trap for Jesus. The Pharisees had especially been looking for opportunities to trap Christ ever since the exchange that happened in Luke chapter 11 Verses 53 and 54, Jesus goes away, it says from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provide him or to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. So Jesus is prompted to call them out in his sermon and, and to help them understand the hypocrisy of their own hearts. Here, Jesus will ask them a direct question Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He, he's waiting for them to respond. He, he wants them to navigate this for themselves. At the heart of the question was, was it, 
right on the Sabbath day to do what was good? Was it right to show mercy? Was it right to extend the heart of God in compassion for those who were hurting? But notice what they did. They remained silent. It's an interesting response. Not because they didn't have a conviction about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. They had expressed that conviction time and time again. But in their silence, you can almost anticipate there is a hope that he will step over the line one more time so they finally have an opportunity to trap him and have evidence against him. But Jesus consistently and repeatedly steps in. Jesus takes control of this situation. It says in verse four, he took him and healed him and sent him away. There is no recorded interchange between Jesus and this man as we have seen many times throughout his ministry in asking what would you like me to do for you or do you believe that I'm able to do this is what he said to the blind men in Galilee. There's no indication that this man has any faith or even knows who Jesus is. But now notice what's missing in the text. Up to this point, Almost every healing that Jesus has accomplished going all the way back to chapter four has been accompanied by one of several things. Either they glorify God or they rejoice in God or they're marveling at God or worshiping God. There's always an expression of glory to the one who has just healed the situation. But notice what we find in our text. It's silent. Silent not only from those of the Pharisees who were there, but also, interestingly, silent from this man as well. Perhaps he was too afraid to rejoice in God in the face of this hostile setting. But Jesus heals him anyway. And then he asks another question that we find in verses five and six. Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on the Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Jesus addresses mercy. Jesus addresses, really, covetousness of their own heart. If you have something that you own, your son, your ox, or your donkey, whatever it is, you want to recover that investment, you don't want to make sure you lose that, what will you do? Well, if you're driven by mercy, you will respond. If you're driven by covetousness, you'll respond. But, but here is a son of God, somebody who belongs to the covenant community, and you're unwilling to act at all similar to what Jesus will ask in Luke chapter 6, verse 9. Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? Well, what is the Sabbath for? How does the Sabbath help to reinforce your your worship of God? How does it help to reinforce the, the character of God? Did not God create life and is not God good? So wouldn't you expect then that God would want to restore life and, and to accomplish good things and to show mercy on this day? And in their twisted minds, they believed that in Jesus performing this miracle by the work of God, but also in their minds, violating the Sabbath was actually a means to accuse him, not a means to commend him. (laughs) Here he is, working on behalf of God, doing this miracle. Apparently this miracle was going to be evidence against Christ, not proof that he really was from God. How twisted they were. Hospitality was also a way to show humility. We see that in verses seven to 11. 
He told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say, that, say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will, you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. At this setting, this dinner of the Pharisees' house, there were oftentimes in this first century culture, there were uh, couches that were set um, oftentimes in a U-shape, and the ones that were closest to the host were the ones were the places of honor. And those who would walk into these various uh, festivities, these dinner, they would understand this, the seating arrangements would designate those who were more prominent in the community. Dinners were regarded as barometers of one's prestige in the gathering and the community. For such occasions, to bring public shame to someone would almost be unbearable to somebody who is climbing this social ladder. Jesus addresses the practicalities of what they were doing. They were watching him closely, but he was also watching them, recognizing the places of honor they, they desired to have. And while it seems as though Jesus was giving special practical advice to how not to get embarrassed at a, at a, at a, at a feast, Jesus is pointing to the future feast and pointing to the heart of God, the heart of this son of man who came, who demonstrated humility in his ministry to others. Do you trust the master with your status? Or are you striving to determine your own position? The inevitability of humility is, is, uh, is given here. You're either going to be humble now or you're going to be humbled later. Jesus' parable may have immediate and temporal implications, but it points to a future reality in heaven. Jesus uses and picks up on this term first and last, which he has used already in his, in his uh, statements in Luke chapter 13. He says in verse 30, indeed there are, uh, and indeed, there are last who will be first, and there are first who will be last. The same words that Jesus is using here in this interchange are the words he used to, to point to this future uh, reality of a meal that's happening in heaven. This was, of course, the echo of Christ's instruction to his disciples in Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28. Jesus called his disciples to him and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servants. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This mealtime context was a perfect opportunity to demonstrate their commitment to show the humility of their Savior, 
to show the humility of their master, to to demonstrate a, a confidence in their master to elevate them as he saw fit. As we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, the same instruction, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that he may prosper, so that he at the proper time may exalt you. Are you trusting God to elevate you, to exalt you in the proper time? And in these moments, living with a posture of service and humility, emulating the heart of our Savior towards others, wherever you go. In verses 12 to 14, we find that hospitality provides an opportunity for generosity. Jesus is now turning his attention from the guests who are there and now turns his attention to the host. He wants to make sure that everyone is included. (laughs) No one's left out. And so in verse 12, he says to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Again, Jesus is pointing forward to that future reality, that time that will be with him in glory, helping his host understand how this becomes a gospel picture of echoing the heart of God towards those who are least deserving. You see, during this Middle Eastern culture in the first century, this was kind of currency that they did. They exploited hospitality for the sake of self-glory and elevation. Everything they did was self-serving. So by, by inviting persons to his banquet, he honors a patron, he repays a client, he reinforces his loyalty or their loyalty by putting them further in debt, or he seeks out new uh, uh, alliances. The aim of this was to gain personal capital. Hospitality was re- regarded as a way to to posture yourself. But Christ wants his host and those who are in the room to understand the significance of hospitality, that it's not about posturing. It's not about positioning. It's not about exploiting others. It's about seeking and serving and loving those who will never be able to repay. Again, echoing the heart of God for those who are least deserving. This obviously expresses the heart of our Savior, who came for sinners, who came to his enemies, who came to those who had nothing to offer, who came to seek and to save the lost. He came to those who were spiritually bankrupt, those who were bound by sin, those who needed rescue. Those are the ones to whom Jesus came, those to whom he invited in. And finally, in verses 15 to 24, we find hospitality provides an opportunity for the gospel. It provides an opportunity for the gospel. Notice in verse 16, 15, it says, when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat the bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. He invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent servants to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field. 
So I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to the master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. The master said to the servant, go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my banquet. Now Jesus capitalizes on this moment to shine the gospel light. (laughs) Somebody in the crowd is asking a question, perhaps to kind of break the awkwardness, to kind of change the, the, the direction of the hostility that's taking place, try to kind of change the subject. He says, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, exactly. Let's talk about that a little bit. He doesn't realize that he's actually stepping into Christ's master plan of helping this audience understand how strategic hospitality can be in order to point the way to this future reality of fellowshipping and feasting with God. This is exactly what Jesus had been trying to to allude to the whole time. So he invites many guests. And oftentimes there were two initial invitations that would go out. The first invitation, which would be kind of an RSVP as preparations were happening, and then the invitation that we find in our passage today, where now it's time, now you can come, and once that invitation, second invitation has been given, now for whatever reason, excuses begin to come in. It is interesting that covetousness is at the heart of at least two of the three of these, of these individuals. It's covetousness and distraction that's getting in the way of them accepting this invitation. Hey, I bought a field, I need, to, I need to check it out. I bought some oxen, I need to go check it out. And, and so, so they're unwilling to honor the, the master of this feast. They're unwilling to accept this invitation because they have other things to do. Similar to what Jesus has talked about where The door is open, strive to enter this narrow gate because once it is closed, it is over. And those who were before him in this dinner event were the very ones who who had been at the very front of the line in terms of opposing Christ's invitation. Each of the individuals begin to make excuses. I bought a field, I I bought some oxen, I married a wife. Of course, these weren't excuses that bore any matter of validity. It was the fact that they gave an excuse at all to this this great invitation. So the master decides to replace these guests. First, he goes to those who are are in the town. He kind of beats the bushes, as it were, in the town to to invite people to come. But there, there aren't enough to attend this feast. So the master of the house now uses a new tactic. He goes into the, the, the country in the lanes. He's, he's beating the, the hedges, as it were, those places where the, the lowest dregs of society would be considered to, to live. He says, bring those poor. Compel them to come. Not by force, 
but to help remove whatever obstacles are in their way to help them know this isn't just a cruel joke, this is an authentic invitation. And while you may not be familiar or in the same economic stratosphere as this master, you are invited, you are welcome. As Jesus declares or indicates on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Those who come to understand their bankruptcy before God are the very ones who will be welcomed in. Well, those who believe that they are satisfied in their own things will reject this invitation of the Savior, of the Master. It was kind of look in the rearview mirror of this passage, and just as a, as a brief review, we, we see the, the heart of our Savior in making himself accessible, in attending this, this dinner, in stepping in, in overcoming whatever barriers might be there for the sake of demonstrating the heart of God, and for the sake of capitalizing on this strategic opportunity of hospitality and emulating the heart of God for those who follow God to match and walk in the steps of our Savior and also showing gospel light through our hospitality to others. Not something that we just do for ourselves as a, as a family, but welcoming others in. The, the power and the beauty of doing this together so that those who are coming from the outside not only see the heart of God towards them, but they see the heart of God towards one another. They see this, this beautiful gospel picture, the power of the gospel in unifying God's people and extending the heart of God to those who are not deserving. May God help us to walk in hospitality and capitalize on this strategic means of shining the heart of God in the gospel to those around us. Lord, we thank you for our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this picture that you have given to us in your Son of willingly stepping in to hostile situations for the sake of wooing and winning them to the message in the gospel of Christ. God, I pray that we would follow in your steps, that we would walk in this way towards those who are around us and shine the gospel light into our communities. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for coming. God bless you this week.